2-0 in a 2-1 game in Cleveland. 4-2 in game three. 2-1 here in game four. Toronto with the lead. That's hit well to center. Pilar is Woo! This fall, a city, maybe even a whole country, united behind a baseball team. The Blue Jays' postseason is drawn to a close, but it was electric seeing the energy they inspired. For the past few seasons, we've finally seen our team on the world baseball stage after a long drought. And seeing ourselves is so important because it's representation. And this episode hey, is all about... Oh, oh, hey. Hey, it's 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 Melanie Hromak, co-founder co of uh, the Toronto theater troupe uh, Headstrong Collective. What what, what are you uh, doing here? Hi, Glenn. Uh, what are you doing here? I was just about to do like an opening intro about how important gender equality is, uh, representation. You know. Cool. Yeah. It, is that okay? Yeah, I mean, as part of Headstrong Collective, my work is all about including like women, LGBTQ people, culturally diverse artists and audiences right, and all the stages of the process. is super important. Right? Absolutely. If you can't be it, you can't see it, you can't be it. Right. So I was just going to say this thing about baseball and how it's like gender, you know, gender inequality and you're, you're making a face like that's. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering if maybe you might not be the best person to be talking about gender equality. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, mm, yeah, good point. Well, okay, so, since you're here, um, maybe maybe you could help us out. Uh, we we usually start the show with a like, this is spacing radio. W would you would you like to kick us off? Yes, yes, I would. This is spacing radio. Broadcasting from the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. This episode, we complement the latest issue of Spacing with a focus on women city builders. We speak to Nancy Smith-Lee, director of the Toronto Centre for Active Transportation, about a recent report on cycling in the GTHA and the untapped cycling potential within the region. And we talk to urban planner Kyle Miller about a personal study he's conducting of pedestrian and cycling injuries and fatalities in Toronto. But first, Pamela Robinson is the Associate Dean, Graduate Studies and Special Programs, as well as the Associate Professor at Ryerson School of Urban and Regional Planning. I sat down with her to discuss the barriers to women in the traditionally male-dominated world of city planning and politics. Stand by. So in your introduction to uh, this this issue of spacing, uh, you sort of pose a question uh, that uh, have uh, is the world of urban planning and design really gotten better and moved on from that sort of 1950s men in suits kind of top-down planning? I'd sure like to hope that it has over the last 60 years of planning practice. Certainly what we've seen is a rise in the number and the breadth of people who are engaging in urban planning and urban politics issues across communities in Canada from coast to coast to coast. And I think people's level of awareness um, and capacity to engage in really good debates about what our urban future should be has certainly grown and changed over time. That doesn't mean that 
there certainly aren't barriers to more people being involved. And it doesn't mean that we can't continue to strive to be um, better at what we do and that our government officials can't continue to try to be creative in terms of finding new ways for people to participate. But I do think we've moved beyond you know, the guys in suit, dog and pony show, at least in, in, in some good progressive aspects of, of planning public consultation and engagement. And to ask the obvious question, why is it important for you know, better rep- representation in terms of gender, in terms of race, uh, to, to, to better build a city for everyone? Well, if you think about the role of the planner, for example, they're supposed to provide sound expert advice, but they're not the only voice in the process. And in our urban decision-making processes, it's the politicians who get to choose what happens. And so what we need to do is make sure that our elected officials are really listening to the widest range of voices possible in terms of people's needs and people's aspirations and people's concerns so that the decisions that are taken that impact our futures and people's quality of life actually meet the needs of the people who are going to live there, both now and in the future. Yeah, and when we talk about equality, we talk a lot about lived experience. And and uh, I wonder, you know, could a well-meaning group of people, you know, as much as they are well-meaning, without a certain kind of lived experience, can you possibly put one group of a homogenized sort of person in a room and have them design an effective city? I think if you think back to the TTC public consultations two years ago where they were starting to think about how to cut services, One of the most poignant kind of stories that were told were people, ordinary people who lived in Toronto, who talked about how they were waiting on the side of the road for 45 minutes without a bus shelter or how long it took people to get to work. And I think for people who live in one part of Toronto where maybe the transit they use involves surface transit on a streetcar or or using a subway, that idea of having to wait that long for a bus in those kinds of conditions for that amount of time was really surprising. And so in a city as big and diverse as ours, both in terms of geography and people, I think we need to get really better at pulling out people's lived experiences because the more we understand how each other are living in the city, the better our collective empathy, I think, will be, but also we're better able to unlock the imaginative power of public engagement to think about the city as a whole rather than just from our own individual experiences. And at City Council, we have uh, councils like Kristen Wong-Tam who have managed to persuade council uh, oftentimes to uh, approach studies with specifically a, a gender equality lens. Do you see, do you find when those studies come back that this lens has actually been applied effectively? I can't speak about the particular studies that you're talking about, but I think in general there's a good precedent in terms of planning practice that if we ask people to pay specific attention to particular people and their needs and the kinds of issues that emerge from their lives, we're likely to get a better planning output in general. And certainly in the introduction that I wrote about, I talked about how at the United Nations, for example, they have gender observers um, in UN habitat planning processes, which is really important because then there are experts in the room who can help ask different kinds of questions that people might generate on their own which just makes the review of the work richer, but also broadens the bookends of the thinking that's happening in the room. So I think the more we pay particular attention to a wider variety of people's needs, the better our planning outcomes are going to be. And so I'd, I'd love to ask, since since we've got you, um, you're, you're a city builder in your own right. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your decade at least experience in uh, specifically um, climate in, in municipalities? Sure. I mean, I got my planning start just outside Kingston in a suburban rural municipality called Pittsburgh Township, which is now the part of Kingston. And one of the first things I had to do in my planning job was we drove every municipal road in the municipal truck. It was me and the junior planner. And so I met farmers and I met um, ordinary people at their driveways talking about the ways in which they lived in the community that they were in. That's quite far away from the experience I have doing work in Toronto, where I'm more teaching planning than actually practicing planning. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody lives 
somewhere and everybody has a story to tell. And I think we can't underestimate the power of just listening to people talk about where they live. When I was on maternity leave with my kids, I used to joke that when I was in the sandbox in Sororan Park, it was field work because everybody had a commentary about what the neighborhood was like and how easy it was to get around or the services that they weren't able to find. And so the more I think we start listening and planning practice to those kinds of stories, the better our planning processes are going to get. Certainly that's been my experience. And as a planning instructor, teaching people from across the country, we've been very lucky to get experiences from other parts of the country that help broaden all of our learning too. And as a woman in these field, like, have you found friction and ha- have you found it getting easier? Both. I think that, um, you know, I still cringe when I get an invitation to come to a panel and I look and, and the people who are on the panel aren't nearly as representative of the ideas and the lived experiences of people actually living in cities or, or planning cities. Um, I think that it's getting better. Certainly in the, the tw- it's been 20 years since I graduated from planning school. It's better than it used to be. But we still see it happen where, you know, the people that we go to are people who are at the end of their careers. And those careers were started at a time when planning wasn't as diverse as it is now. Um, But I am hopeful when I look at the students that we get to teach here. And I know students from other planning schools, too. I think about the future generation of planning is incredibly diverse. Um, They're smart. They're creative. And the kinds of questions they're asking, I think, forebode well for what our cities are going to look like down the road. As contributing editor at Spacing, Pam Robinson also wrote an excellent introduction to the latest issue of the magazine. So you should hurry out and grab a copy. Now, a recent study between the Toronto Centre for Active Transportation and Ryerson University looked at the state of cycling in the GTHA, untapped potential trips, and the barriers that keep people off their bike. Most notably, only one-third of cyclists in the region are women. Here, TCAT director Nancy Smith-Lee breaks down the report. So Nancy, first, can you tell me what sort of brought this study together? Sure. This was a study that uh, I worked on with Dr. Rakhtin Mitra at Ryerson University. We were really interested in what the, um, what the cycling patterns were across the greater Toronto-Hamilton area or the GTHA, and uh, also what the potential was for increasing cycling. So that was really the, the, the reason that we did the study. Right, and you, you, you found some I- interesting things. Uh, in, in particular, uh, one of the findings was that women is a sort of untapped demographic in terms of cycling. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, we found a number of different areas that of the GTHA that have great potential. One of the things that was really interesting just to, off the bat was that there's 14 million trips a day being made in the region. Uh, and about a third of those we think have high potential for being bike trips. So that's like right off the bat. There's like this, we found this this really high potential. And we found in a number of different areas that there's, there's potential. So, um, in particular, there's a number of short trips being made um, across the region, and we think that about a third of those uh, could be made by bike. And what's interesting about those trips, those short trips, is we didn't really find uh, geographical variation. So we, so you know, there's this kind of idea that a lot of the trips that are being made in the suburbs are much longer, and that's really not what we found. So we we did find that there's a number of short trips being made in the suburbs as well as in the downtown areas that could be potentially um, made by bike. Um, but then there was a whole, a whole bunch of other areas that we found that were with high potential. And one of those areas was 
um, was particularly uh, specifically for women. Um, we found that um, only about 30% of trips are being made by women. Uh, 30% of cycling trips are being made by women. And um, so there's a really high potential there for figuring out what women's barriers are and actually shifting some of those trips to bike. And, and from some of the conversations you've had and certainly some of the conversations I've had, uh, safety is, or the lack thereof is, is a big barrier for women. Yeah, that's really the number one issue is safety. Um, and uh, that comes out time and time again, that uh, the lack of, of safe um, cycling infrastructure is a, is a really key barrier for everyone, um, but it particularly impacts women as well. Um, and there's, um, there's actually like a number that one of the things that we found too that's really interesting was we found that, you know, unlike the, you know, as I mentioned, we found that there was this big geographical variation for, um, or there wasn't a big geographical ge- variation for a uh, number of trips that are uh, short trips. But we found that there was really an interesting geographical variation in terms of women and cycling. And so um, so overall, the, in, the, in the region, there's 30% are only being made by women. Um, but then if you looked into the, the regions like Durham, York, Halton, and Peel, um, only 20% of trips are being, uh, cycling trips are being made by women. And, um, and then if you look in some of the, um, the downtown areas like Toronto, we're kind of reaching almost gender parity um, in terms of the, um, the number of men and women um, cycling. And so that's really, that, what that really is, um, uh, shows us that, you know, there's research that has shown that the more that people are cycling, the safer it is. And the more that people are cycling, the more likely that women are, are going to cycle. And so there's this kind of virtuous cycle that happens um, that the more that you get people cycling, the more women will cycle. And that's what we're actually seeing that in, in the research that we did. So is it safe to say that the, the infrastructure that Toronto, the municipality, has invested in so far, it, we're already seeing uh, rinter- returns on that investment? Yeah, I mean, that um, it's probably premature in terms of our study because we need we were looking at um, the Transportation Tomorrow Survey, which is is um, the last version was really in from 2006. Um, so, but what we did find was a real connection between uh, the number of people in cycling and infrastructure. So the more that there was in, and this was across the region, the more likely there were to be cycling trips. So we definitely did find a connection there. So what are some of the things that uh, municipalities here in the GTHA and and probably elsewhere in other Canadian cities uh, can do to sort of uh, tap into this untapped, um, you know, potential cyclists? Yeah, the number one thing that we found is bike infrastructure. Um, Only 2% of the GTHA road infrastructure has bike infrastructure on it. Um, And we found that if just 10% of those trips could, or 10% of those streets had bike lanes, that we would increase cycling rates by four times. So that's, you know, the number one the number one message, I think, is that bike infrastructure is key and that municipalities are starting to build that out and we need to see that trend continue. Um, but interestingly, the, you know, there's uh, something that we didn't look at in our study, but that is that we found at TCAD is, um, is also important, is, is really building a culture of cycling. And we, so we think that that's one of the reasons that we've seen this kind of explosion of cycling in downtown Toronto is because a lot of it actually predates the infrastructure. 
um, or predates a lot of the infrastructure. And so, and there's, so there's a lot that kind of goes into that kind of culture um, of creating, you know, a culture of cycling. And some of that really has to do with just a kind of the, the supports that are, that people need in order to make that shift to using another mode of transportation. Uh, one of the things that we found in, in the work that we're doing in Scarborough is that there's only one bike shop in Scarborough of all Scarborough. And, you know, so the rest of the, you know, there's 95 bike shops in Toronto and only one of them is in Scarborough. And so, you know, there's, those 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 kinds of supports are are huge um, in terms of just not only like where am I going to get my bike fixed, but does it feel normal to ride my bike? Are there people around me riding my bike? And so that kind of needs to go hand in hand with with building the bike infrastructure is really targeting those areas where there's high potential, and really you know in addition to the infrastructure, really building some programming to really get people on their bikes and getting people feeling comfortable on their bikes. So that's another thing that we would suggest as well. And for listeners who, who may not be familiar, can you tell me a little bit about what TCAT is and what's, what its kind of ethos is? Yeah, so TCAT, this is actually our 10-year anniversary, and we, have, uh, we really started as a grassroots coalition. Our goal was to, um, to really advance the um, understanding and awareness of active transportation and the importance of active transportation, which is walking and cycling. And so we were, uh, you know, our coalition got together before the 2006 um, election, so 10 years ago. Um, since then, we've uh, we've uh, become part of the registered charity, the Cleaner Partnership, and our and our work now really focuses on um, research and policy and developing kind of evidence-based programming to increase the number of cyclists, so and and pedestrians. So that's um, and. The third, the third kind of stream that we've we've been championing is the complete streets uh, work. So, in a number of different, we've taken a number of different tacks to uh, to move that forward, um, in, including the complete streets forum and developing a complete streets for Canada website and with resources on that for really helping municipalities understand how to actually change our streets to make them more inclusive for walking and cycling. And to ask a sort of obvious question, why is it important in a city like Toronto or, or surrounding cities in the GTHA to increase the mode share of people who are walking to wherever they need to go or, or cycling? Yeah, I mean, walking and cycling are, you know, the healthiest, uh, cheapest, um, environmentally friendly ways to get around. And and I think that, you know, we all know that in some level, um, but actually how to, you know, encourage more trips by walking and cycling is is what's difficult but i think that you know especially when we're seeing you know the the kind of results that we saw we've been seeing and these gender differences that are occurring i think there's a you know i think there's a really um, political and moral imperative to actually find out why um, some people are not kind of embracing this more active and healthy way of getting around um, and and actually addressing that issue if safety, or the lack thereof, is a barrier to active transportation in the city, it's essential that we take careful measurement of pedestrian and cyclist injuries and death. Toronto is on track for another dismal year on that front, and urban planner Kyle Miller has begun compiling data about every collision. I spoke to Kyle at the spacing store at 401 Richmond and asked him about what that data can tell us. 
So Kyle, first tell me a little bit about the numbers you've been crunching. So back at the start of bike month in Toronto, which was June 1st or thereabouts, I uh, became aware of the Toronto Police Operations, TPS Operations Twitter feed, where they every day post you know dozens and dozens of tweets about all the kinds of things that the police are responding to. And um, amongst those tweets, they frequently uh, post about collisions uh, between cars, between buses, motorcycles, you name it. Um, but frequently there are collisions involving pedestrians and cyclists. And as a cyclist and an urban planner, I thought it'd be interesting to start recording these tweets, the writing down the information that, that was contained in each one, and just sort of developing a sense of what kind of an environment the city uh, presents to people who are cycling to work every day during bike month, which is what they want you to do during bike month. A lot of promotion goes into that. And so uh, it started as an exercise of tracking the tweets casually uh, for a month. And then I got to the end of the month and I thought I should probably keep going because this is interesting. There were quite a few collisions that month. Um, I was originally originally looking at uh, cyclists being hit by cars, but later I branched out into pedestrians as well uh, because I thought, you know, they are equally vulnerable on the roads. And as I found, actually, it's the uh, pedestrians are dying at a much higher rate than cyclists in Toronto. So uh, it's worth tracking those statistics as well. Um, and so I've continued tracking now for since since the end of May. It's now early October. I have no intent of stopping. It's, I'm going to keep doing this. Um, so that's that's how this started. It was tracking tweets uh, from the Toronto Police. Um, and we recently hit the 400th collision uh, between a car and a cyclist or pedestrian. And so I, I tweeted about that, and I said, this is a big landmark. 400 tweets over the course of a few months is a, a big issue. Um, you know, what, what, what's happening in the city? Why, why aren't we doing something to deal with this problem? As soon as I tweeted that, I heard from the Toronto police themselves, they volunteered the statistic that the actual number is not 400, it's 1,082. Uh, in other words, they don't tweet about every collision that's reported to them. They only tweet about the ones that are serious injuries or that end up closing traffic for, for a few hours, and they want people to be aware of it. It's more of a PSA than a comprehensive record of everything the police are dealing with. So uh, the number 400 was actually three times that, almost uh, 1,100 collisions. Um, that was a real uh, finding, I guess. Um, I was very pleased to see the police volunteering that information. They, they wanted me to, to have the right numbers, so I tweeted that. And there was a lot of response that came out of that. And we're on track for a, kind of a dismal year uh, looking at the numbers. Yeah, so if you extrapolate the numbers that I've captured since the end of May... Uh, I've recorded 454 um, collisions through the Twitter feed. Uh, that extrapolates to around 1,300 collisions for the year, uh, assuming the rate stays constant. But actually, if we, we can assume that Toronto Police are only tweeting about one-third, we're looking at more like uh, 4,000 collisions between cars and pedestrians or cyclists a year in Toronto. And right now in major cities all over the world, we're discussing this concept of Vision Zero, the idea that there is uh, that no cyclist or pedestrian or road user fatality or injury is acceptable. That's right, yeah. So Vision Zero is a Swedish initiative. It started in 1997, I believe, in, in Sweden as a national uh, policy. Uh, apparently it was not the smoothest of things to implement, as you might imagine, but since then it has been uh, you know, taken up 
with uh, great vigor across the country and, and now increasingly in other jurisdictions as well. But in Sweden, it, it's really worked. They've managed to reduce the number of fatalities and serious injuries on their roads significantly uh, year on year. And that number just keeps going down. Uh, in certain categories of road users, such as children, I think it's they've almost completely eliminated them, which is fantastic. One example of how Vision Zero works is you you look at the limits of tech, the technology and uh, the human body. So if a if a pedestrian can withstand a collision uh, being hit by a car at 30 kilometers an hour, uh, which they can, that's about the the level of at which 10% of pedestrians would die at, at that speed. Um, versus 50 kilometers an hour, where 80% of pedestrians die. Uh, you basically say, well, 30, li- 30 kilometers an hour is the limit at which we will allow humans and cars to be in the same place. And you want to have a speed limit higher than that, you have to physically separate the pedestrians from the cars and make sure they can never intersect. And that would involve building things like bridges across the streets so the, and putting walls up against along all your streets. And in practice, that's quite difficult. So instead, what they do is they just limit their speed limits to 30 kilometers an hour. Of course, they don't just limit the speed they they don't just put up a sign they actually design their roads uh, you know through engineering uh, so that people will feel very very uncomfortable driving anything faster than 30 kilometers an hour if we tried to do this in toronto and just put up some speed limit signs uh, people are still going to drive the speed at which the roads are designed uh, for so you know 50 60 kilometers an hour in many cases and uh, the only way to slow them down would be uh, you know, very rigorous enforcement, which in practice is is not very sustainable. It costs a lot of money, and it's impractical to put a somebody with a radar gun on every street. So, really, it does come down to infrastructure at, at some level. If you want to slow people down, which Sweden has found is the the key way to prevent people from dying on your streets, uh, you need to redesign the roads. Right, and right now in Toronto, we are talking about road safety. Uh, We're trying to develop and implement a road safety plan. We're talking a lot about Vision Zero, but what I'm seeing, uh, uh, you know, on the street is is uh, police cracking down on uh, pedestrians crossing when the the pedestrian crossing signal is counting down. They're saying that's the problem. Uh, it seems like we're not actually serious about doing the kind of physical interventions that you're talking about that are key to the Vision Zero plan. I think you're right. Uh, nominally, we have adopted a road safety plan in Toronto that uses the words Vision Zero somewhere, I think. I, I actually need to spend more time with the plan. Um, but, you know, there's just been a series of inter top 10 intersections for congestion in the city. They're, they've just announced a series of improvements to those intersections. And if you look at the, what, what's being proposed, it's mostly about improving the flow of traffic and congestion. Uh, almost by definition, is vehicular congestion. I don't think anyone in Toronto is really worried about pedestrian or cycling congestion. Wouldn't that be a lovely problem to to have? And we do have it in certain parts of the city, but that's not the focus, certainly, of this latest intervention. It's all about speeding up the car, which, ironically, is is the opposite of Vision Zero, because the places they're doing this, uh, trying to speed up vehicular flow, are not places where pedestrians are protected. In fact, they're they're often in suburban areas where pedestrians are even more vulnerable because um, speeds are high. the The city was developed in those parts um, after the car became widespread, so the the roads are wide, the the densities are low, um, and despite the congestion, these are dangerous places to ride a bike or to uh, to be a pedestrian. And so by speeding up the cars, you're only making 
the risks higher for the vulnerable road users. And so what ultimately do you hope uh, to do with this data that you've been you know, very meticulously tracking this whole time? So I've, I've been tracking the number of collisions, um, you know, cyclists and pedestrians. I've been tracking uh, the date and time. Um, when the police volunteer additional data through the tweets, I record that as well. So it's the gender of the person who's been hit, um, their age sometimes, and then the severity of injury as well. That seems to come out with about half of the collisions. Uh, there's injury information. Um, so 13 collisions have been fatal since I started tracking. Um, there have been 14% were life-threatening or serious injury, 27% non-life-threatening, and only 3% of the collisions have they ever said there were no injuries. So I think we can safely assume that there are injuries in, in the vast majority of these cases. Um, my short-term plan is to keep tracking so I have about a year's worth of data and then to request from the police um, the, f the full data set because I know they're only tweeting about a third. So if I can get the other two-thirds um, from you know whatever they, they've had reported to them, preferably with all the metadata, so age, gender, and injury um, of the victim, then we can benchmark the Twitter feed, but we can also start to draw more detailed conclusions. If we look at where these things are happening, we can identify hotspots, which we can start to use as we uh, look into causes potentially for these collisions. Um, we can look at time of day versus when the sun sets and rises, see if these are at night or if they're during the day. I can look up the weather for each day that these uh, collisions took place and see if it was a rainy day or a clear day. You know, these studies have been done elsewhere. I'm, I'm certainly aware that most collisions, I think, actually happen in broad daylight on, on beautiful days. And at some level, it comes down to those are the days that people choose to walk and bike. Um, so you have to control for those factors as well. But I think it would be very interesting once I have a year's worth of data um, to do some, some more in-depth studies and statistics and see what I can find for a Toronto-specific context. The only thing that makes me a little sad about that is I have to wait a year to get this data. And, I'll, you know, in that year, 4,000 people are going to get hit by cars. Uh, we're looking at, well, if you extrapolate the number of people who've died so far uh, in the period that I've been tracking, we're looking at around 38 to 40 deaths uh, for pedestrians and cyclists being hit by cars. And uh, waiting, the longer we wait, the worse things get. So it's a shame that I that I have to wait. But, you know, I think a year's worth of statistics would be very informative when, when you see a winter, when you see a summer, uh, long days, short days, all of that variation. That's very important that we consider that because looking at just the summer um, is interesting. But so far, I, I, I have no sense of what we'll see in the winter, whether more people will get hit by cars because it's darker and visibility is poorer. And uh, perhaps, you know, it's harder to stop on a slippery road. Um, or, you know, in, in summer, we'll see more collisions because there are just more people out and about. This episode barely scratches the surface when it comes to women and city building. Certainly, there's much more to address, and we'll continue to pursue issues of representation and equality, as well as celebrate women who make a difference in our cities, from grassroots all the way up to City Hall and beyond. In the meantime, the latest issue of Spacing Magazine features a whole host of women who are currently working to build the best possible version of our city, and you really should check it out. 
We've seen in cities all over the world the positive effects of diversity and equal representation in city building. And we've seen what happens when we don't pursue that representation. Bad city building. Cities that work for some, but inconvenience others or even put them in harm's way. All good intentions aside, unless everyone has a proper seat at the table, we are setting ourselves up to fail. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your bike polo team, your dog walker, or your passive-aggressive roommate. As always, a like, share, or subscribe would help us out immensely. Mark November 21st on your calendar because Spacing and Hot Docs will be kicking off a new film series beginning with the critically acclaimed documentary, Urbanized. Our editor Matt Blackett and Toronto Chief Planner Jennifer Keysmat will be there after the show for a quick Q&A, so don't miss out. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions at pixelpi.ca. Please get at us with questions, comments, concerns, and tips. We're on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or you can email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West. The latest issue of Spacing is in stores this week, so look out for that. In the meantime, support your local indie theater collectives. Cheers. Cheers.